This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, February 26, 2024. I'm Caleb Brown. We know that malicious prosecutions happen and that people wrongfully charged ought to have some recourse. So what are the circumstances under which you might challenge a malicious prosecution? The case now pending before the U.S. Supreme Court takes up that question. Cato's Tommy Barry explains why it matters. The right to challenge malicious prosecutions fundamentally comes from the Fourth Amendment, which says no warrant shall issue except for probable cause. And that probable cause standard doesn't mean that if they win, that they need to eventually prosecute and convict you for it to have been a valid uh, arrest warrant. But it means that they have to have had some good reason. They can't just make things up. And going back to early days of the United States and even before the United States and England, if a police officer just completely made something up or a prosecutor completely made something up and, and used that lie to arrest you, you could essentially sue them just like you could sue any private citizen for, for kidnapping you because the notion was they were acting outside of legal justification uh, when they made that arrest. In challenging a malicious prosecution, is it the same as asserting a malicious prosecution? Or is it, we know it's a malicious prosecution and now I'm going to get my day in court over it? It hasn't been proven yet. Like any lawsuit, you you assert a malicious prosecution and then it goes to the courts and the court has to decide. It has to look at, okay, what did the police officer and the prosecutor know at the time? Were they bringing this in good faith? Were they making anything up intentionally? And also just objectively, was the information that they had, did it meet that baseline level of probable cause? And sometimes there are disputed facts and that's why uh, you need to be able to get to the fact-finding stage. But that becomes more difficult when courts set up doctrines that don't even let you get to that evidentiary fact-finding stage. What are the salient questions right now about challenges to malicious, malicious prosecutions? Well, one of the big ones that the Supreme Court is going to be reviewing this term is what happens if there's a mix of valid and invalid charges. So oftentimes when people are arrested, there's a bill, there's a prosecution, and it charges them with maybe two, three, four, five crimes. And it could turn out that one of those was completely based on a lie, a misunderstanding, um, an inaccurate interpretation of the law. But maybe a couple of the others were valid. There was probable cause. In that situation, can you sue for malicious prosecution for the one or two crimes among that set that did not have probable cause. One side of the debate says yes, of course, because the more charges you were arrest for, arrested for, the more harm you often incur, the longer you might stay in pretrial detention. Whereas the other side says no, you can't bring out a claim because it's simply a yes or no question. Did the government have justification to arrest you at all? And so long as there was probable cause for one crime, they had justification to arrest you. And so treating the arrest itself as long as some element of this arrest was valid, the fact that we prosecuted you maliciously for an element of that arrest, some courts are saying that clears away your right to sue? That's right. Specifically, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is sort of the middle Midwest part of the country, Kentucky, Tennessee, Ohio, and Michigan, that circuit has had a doctrine for several years, unusually compared to the rest of the country, saying that so long as one arrest, one charge uh, in the bill was valid, you cannot sue categorically. You can't even get to the stage of raising evidence that, that the other charges did not have probable cause. And so far, they've set no limiting principle on this. It means that hypothetically, you could be arrested for murder and jaywalking 
if the murder charge was based on a complete lie by the police, you still can't sue if the jaywalking was was legitimate. That's a perfect example for my next question, which is when you are arrested for murder plus some trivial crime at the same time, one of those is going to put you in jail pending trial, which could be months or years. Exactly. The severity of the crime that you're charged with often, usually, affects how long you're held in pretrial detention, what your bail is set at, whether you even have the opportunity to make bail at all, whether it's even offered. This is just obvious to anyone who's interacted with the system or, or been a criminal defense lawyer, um, that you undergo a lot more uh, loss of freedom even before you're ever convicted, uh, depending on the severity of the charge. This would seem to let the state totally off the hook for any malicious prosecution as long as they jump through a couple of hoops and catch you committing some other crime around the time they are prepared to prosecute you maliciously. That's exactly right. And I think this case going up to the Supreme Court really illustrates that perfectly. This is a case where a jewelry shop owner, someone came in and sold a couple pieces of jewelry. And then later in the day, someone else came in and said, I think that jewelry was stolen from me. A few weeks go by, the police do an interview with this jewelry shop owner. He says he had no reason to know at the time he bought the jewelry that it might have been stolen. And then he alleges uh, this has to be uh, taken as true at this stage of the litigation, that the police officer simply went back and altered their police report and wrote in that he had confessed that he suspected the jewelry was stolen at the moment he bought it when he had said no such thing. And on that basis, charged him with felony money laundering for purchasing uh, jewelry he suspected to be stolen. But at the same time, they also charged him with two misdemeanors, violating licensing rules for owning jewelry shops and something related to holding stolen property where you don't have to show intent. So those two minor crimes, according to the Sixth Circuit, have completely eliminated his chance to sue for what, if it actually happened, would be an absolutely egregious case of police misconduct. Going forward, his ability to challenge the malicious prosecution is in the hands of the U.S. Supreme Court and it will have, you know, massive effects, I assume, for other cases. And however the court decides, that would seem to send a really clear signal to police and prosecutors. It will. And and one of the perverse effects that we discuss in Cato's amicus brief is that so long as the Sixth Circuit rule is in effect, where you just need one valid charge to immunize yourself, the incentive is perverse. The incentive is to bring more charges rather than less. And we already have a big problem with overcharging in the criminal justice system for other reasons, for the fact that it allows them to use coercive plea bargaining. The more crimes you're charged with, the more you're likely to settle for a smaller sentence rather than try to fight it in court in front of a jury. So if you care about things like overcharging, you have to be really concerned about the rule and the perverse incentive the Sixth Circuit has set up. And I think also, depending on how the Supreme Court decides this case, it could at least have tea leaves that can be read for other doctrines, because this is ultimately about the right to sue under Section 1983. And of course, that's the same statute the qualified immunity debate is raging under. To what extent does that statute include defenses, immunities for government agents? 
for those who want to follow this case, what should they know about the timing of it? Yeah, so the oral arguments will be held before the end of April uh, during this current Supreme Court term, and decisions as always come by the end of June, but that's the Supreme Court's self-imposed deadline. So far, we've had briefing from the defendant and amicus briefs supporting him from a wide range of ideological groups, not just Cato and the Libertarian Institute for Justice, but also more progressive groups like the Constitutional Accountability Center. So I think the Supreme Court's gotten a good sense from the range of briefing of just how many groups are, are seriously concerned by this practice. Tommy Berry edits the Cato Institute's annual Supreme Court review. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please. And thank you for listening.